Hi everybody, it's Defend Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio. June the 12th, 2011. I hope that you are going to come out to Porkfest, P-R-C-F-E-S-T.com, to the Liberty Fest in, on September 10th in New York City, L-Y-F-N-C. Uh, that's the way to get there. And uh, of course, libertopia.org for more uh, to see. I guess I'm emceeing that and I'll be all over the place. I have a bunch of speaking gigs at uh, Porkfest and a roast, so I hope you can join us. This is the Sunday Philosophy Call-In Show. I'm going to start with a couple of... YouTube, uh, I did Facebook questions last time. These are going to be YouTube questions. Thank you, everybody, for your patience. If somebody wrote to me, Steph, you seem excellent at presenting your arguments. You have charisma and could easily be a leader figure. So I'm curious, why would you not choose to be a politician? Well, um, I guess uh, it's mostly because I don't think that you can join the mafia and turn it into a virtuous organization. Uh, the state is defined by a monopoly of the initiation of force, and uh, I don't believe any philosophers who are into the non-aggression principle should be anywhere near it. So no, uh, it's not something that I've been tempted to do. So uh, somebody wrote to me, said, I like to eat tomatoes and watch your videos. It's been about six months now. I really, really appreciate that, and in your honor, I am going to go get a sunburn on my forehead this week. Uh, so, somebody has asked, said, you need to make more of your hour-long videos, Steph. Me and my wife are impatiently awaiting the release of your more in-depth discussions on all topics related to your brilliance. Well, um, uh, the, one of the reasons that the videos got shorter was because I was getting a number of uh, uh, comments from, uh, from, from people who listened to the show saying that they enjoyed putting Free Domain Radio on as background to their lovemaking and they couldn't uh, sustain the, the lengthy podcast. And so they asked me to whittle it down to six or seven minutes, which I think is really, really impressive. Ah, youth. Uh, so really, this is why the hour-long ones, uh, Sting really liked them, of course, because of his... Um, sexual predilections, and other people who were into tantric sex really liked it, but uh, some of the people who were slightly more impatient uh, didn't, so, uh, so that's, um, that's why. Uh, somebody wrote and said, thank atheist Jesus for Steph's brain. Uh, I, uh, I'm quite grateful to have the brain that I have. Um, as far as uh, uh, brains and boobs go, I have a decap. And so I'm quite pleased with it, and I am very grateful for it, uh, and uh, I try to put it to as much good use as I can. So thank you. Uh, somebody wrote said, I have my first baby on the way and found your philosophical parenting podcast very interesting. Uh, in, if you go to freedomainradio.com, there's, uh, under the podcast section, there's a whole uh, series that I've done on philosophical parenting. Uh, my partner and I hardly ever raise our voices to one another or anyone else unless I have a megaphone in my hand. I think that uh, no, no violence, no aggression principle is going to be a great experiment. We'll see what happens, though. Thanks a million. It's been working absolutely fantastically and beautifully. I couldn't be more pleased uh, being a parent. I couldn't be happier with my relationship with my wonderful, affectionate, funny, funny daughter. Oh, she's so smart. She was out yesterday. Um, I was doing some gardening, and I gave her the hose with a fair amount of water, and she was making it spin around, and she said, Dad, look, I'm making hula hoops with the water. I love it. I love it. It's just, it's fireworks fertility. Uh, of the mind. And um, I do enjoy the challenge of making up stories on the spot uh, for her uh, because she's very into hearing stories at the moment. And so that's pretty cool. So it's, it's a real great challenge. Uh, somebody wrote kindly to say, I can say without a doubt that this is the greatest channel on YouTube. Thank you, Stefan. You can't even imagine how much you've helped me. Well, 
thank you for those very kind comments. Philosophy has helped me. I'm really just trying to pay it forward. The thanks all go to philosophy and to the listeners who donate and subscribe and all of that, who make all of this possible. So thank you, everybody, uh, so, so much. Oh, yeah, somebody posted that I have reached 666 videos. Stefan is clearly the Antichrist. And um, I think of myself as more of the Uncle Christ, but uh, that's my particular approach. Somebody wrote and said, why don't you debate real Christian philosophers like Dr. William Lane Craig or Dr. Keith Ward? You're a chicken shit wannabe philosopher who picks on Christians who are not very bright. Not all Christians are Bible thumping morons. Many have as much and more knowledge of philosophy and science than you have, but simply keep Christianity as their personal faith. You are a coward who only debates or talks to the Christians who aren't so bright. Try debating Dr. Craig or Ward amongst many others, and you would be owned. You are trying to create your own kind of philosophy, and it's bullshit. Is it, is it petty to point out that there's a lot of grammar errors in this? Oh, I guess it's a little late <laughs> to ask that question now, isn't it? Um... Yeah, look, I mean, if you want, uh, you want me to debate with these people, send them my name. I'm, I'm happy to debate with anyone, honestly. Uh, I am a throwdown debater. I will talk to anyone about philosophy at any time. So you email them, give them my website, tell them I want to debate, and uh, I will debate with them. I have a debate coming up in August with a lawyer who is a minarchist who wants to take me on on anarchism. Fantastic. After my debates with uh, Michael Badnarik and, um, oh, I can't remember what's his name, the other guy, uh, people haven't seemed to want to debate me. I've sent out a bunch of invitations for debates, but uh, nobody wants to nobody wants to debate the Steph Bot. So we'll see what happens with that. But no, please send them, send them. I'm more than happy to debate with people. And uh, if they school me, wonderful. I, I love to learn. So if I'm incorrect about something, please, please, please uh, have people come and correct me. Uh, somebody wrote, said, I would like to see a weekly conversation with Jeff Tucker. You guys have a great dialogue with one another. I agree. Uh, I don't know if we can do it weekly, but we'll certainly try. Uh, somebody wrote, said, I haven't seen all your videos yet. <laughs> well, I can understand that. But I'm wondering about your economic views. Where would you put yourself in the spectrum? Actually, I don't even understand yet if you're a far leftist or a fiscal conservative. It is really quite, fasc- <laughs> it's quite fascinating to see uh, the degree of projection that can occur. I mean, I've been ac- accused of being a, a Marxist, a, a, a fascist, a, a laissez-faire, a, a Keynesian. I mean, everybody, you know, if they watch one or two videos, they don't exactly know where I'm coming from. The story of your enslavement, which is, my, I think, my most popular video, gets me called Marxist quite a bit. Um, but that's all right. I mean, I'm actually extremely, vehemently anti-Marxist. There's a false and destructive doctrine. So uh, on the economic views, um, private property is the only form of property that is valid and the non-initiation of force. Uh, That's where I stand uh, economically. Uh, I go with the Austrian Praxeological School, which uh, has uh, as its essence that there are certain basic facts that you really shouldn't interfere with in the free market, right? So um, you can go to Mises.org to find out more about that, but uh, that's a good place to start. Um, again, you know, this is more for people to, I mean, I, I get this stuff a lot. I, this is not meant to be a pat pat on my head, but just for you to get how much this conversation is helping people. Hi, Stefan. I would just like to let you know how much I personally appreciate your efforts. I truly can't find the words to illustrate how much everything you say resonates so deeply with me, within me. I know that living a virtuous life isn't easy, but seeing that there are people like you out there really helps me to keep pushing myself in that direction. So thank you and best wishes. And uh, I appreciate that. And, and remember that a lot of the shows that I've done have been conversations with listeners like this show or interviews and so on. 
Steph, why on earth should I listen to you when you've only had about parenting when you've had less than three years experience as a parent? Well, you shouldn't listen to me about parenting because I have or do not have experience as a parent. Uh, that, that's not the essence of why you should listen to me or not listen to me because I make rational, consistent arguments either from first principles or with evidence. That's why you should listen to me. You're not listening to me, right? Not about my opinions. Like people say, you're a philosophy or you're trying to create philosophy or it's Molyneux's philosophy. It's not my philosophy. It's either good philosophy or it's bad philosophy, right? We, we don't say uh, that Dawkins uh, does good biology. Like Dawkins' biology is really good and uh, other people's biology, creationist biology is really bad. No, it's either good biology or it's bad biology. Good science or bad science. Right? We don't say that the, um, the mathematics that Einstein did, uh, Einstein's mathematics is really good. No, it's either good mathematics or it's not. So it's either good philosophy that I'm putting out or it's bad philosophy. It's either valid or it's invalid. It's true or it's false. Rational, irrational. Empirical or anti-empirical. So you're not listening to me. Uh, don't worry about agreeing with me. I'm, you know, <laughs> I am hopefully a fairly clear conduit of uh, arguments and uh, evidence. So you're listening to the arguments and the evidence. This is why it's so important to just detach the argument from the person. So somebody wrote, I disagree with many of your views on politics. However, I wouldn't want to live in a world where people like you can't speak up. People like you make this world more curious and interesting. Well, I appreciate that. But uh, again, people say this a lot that they disagree with me. Uh, somebody wrote on my um, free will video series uh, that uh, free will is not my strong suit. I don't know what that means. That's not an argument. That's not a rebuttal of anything that I've got as content in the video. And people try this all the time. Just lob these stink bombs hoping to find doubt and insecurity within me. Uh, and uh, I don't really know what to do with them because there's no actual argument there. So, you know, for everybody out there who wants to rebut me, fantastic. Rebut, rebut away. Call into the Sunday show. Let's have a rebuttal. That would be fantastic. But uh, just telling me that I'm wrong, bah, bah, bah. Okay. Uh, somebody wrote, Steph, you have touched me where not many people have my mind. Sorry, I couldn't resist, he wrote. Thank you, I appreciate that. And uh, you might want to get that oil changed. So uh, this is a common error. Dawkins talks about it too. He said, last time I checked, evolution was still a theory. Since when has it been proven? Mm -hmm. You have to understand the way that scientists use the word theory. They don't mean something that's unproven, right? Like in legal terms, allegation is unproven. Uh, and uh, theory simply means it's a way of describing the world. And theories accumulate evidence and so on. So there, there's a theory of gravity. That doesn't mean that, that gravity doesn't exist. I mean, the theory may, correct, be, may be correct or not correct. But the theory of evolution, if you listen to or read The Greatest Show on Earth by Dawkins, uh, is about as proven as anything can be in science. So um, uh, the fact that they call it the theory of evolution doesn't mean that it's not proven. You just need to look that sort of stuff up a little bit. Uh, somebody wrote, I thought this is a good statement, said, in a world of corruption and ignorance, being intelligent and morally upstanding is a curse that is burdened by the few for the many for all mankind. And I think that is absolutely a beautiful way of putting it. Uh, somebody wrote, I still can't decide if you're a shill or not. Please don't take the, that personally. I see so much piss and wind and disinformation, but at least you seem to be making an effort in some way. Uh, I'll take the same stand as George Carlin and Spectate. Whether one is a herder of livestock, we've all ruined the gift. I don't know if that gift is divine or just the universe unfolding in its unbiased logic. But whatever stance you come from, Stefan, make sure you look after your family and get your kicks before the whole shithouse goes up in perdition's flames. That's good writing, I think. It's good writing, and I just wanted to pass that along. Oh, and I did, sorry, I did forget to mention that the person who's saying, why should I listen to your parenting when you've had only um, three years of it? Remember, there's three years of full time. Full time. 
full time, right? I, uh, I parent for like 15 hours a day. Uh, if you're, a, if you're a, a working parent, uh, you know, you leave at 7.30 in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning, you come home at 6 or 6.30 at night, you may be parenting two hours a day. So I'm parenting 15, a lot of parents are only parenting at least weekdays too. So by this time, I've accumulated as much parenting as a lot of people do by the time their kids are in their mid-teens. So it is quite a lot of quantity. Hopefully it's quality as well. Uh, somebody said, saw you on Adam versus the man and had to sub. Great work. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, Adam versus the man, you can catch uh, on rt.com uh, weeknights at 7 p.m. Uh, See, Stefan Molyneux is very short-sighted. Private property is more sacred to him than the life of his children. Even if the upper 0.01% acquired 99% of the planet's property by means of the gold standard, he would still be preaching about the sanctity of the private property, even though his children would work as bad paid peasants. Uh, again, this is simply assertions and statements without any, uh, any evidence. Um, the upper 1% could never acquire 99% of the planet's property. Uh, it simply would be, would be not possible. Um, what people don't understand is that in a free market, you get a huge churning between the, uh, the, the classes, right? So, sort of upper, middle, lower classes, for want of better phrases. So, uh, in any 10 to 20 year period, a third of people in the upper class drop down a class or two, and a third of people in the lower classes go up a class or two. And this is even in the vestigial remnants of the free market that exists in North America. So there's a huge amount of churn, right? I mean, that used to be saying in America, um, rags to riches to rags in three generations, right? Which is the idea that you make a lot of money and your kids all blow it and everybody ends up poor again. The only way that the upper classes can maintain their privilege is through the state. Because you never know uh, which uh, brain-spanning genius of economic productivity is going to be poor, is going to be born to some poor person, uh, and then revolutionize the world, become very rich. And of course, uh, think of all the people in the 19th century who were uh, wealthy as all get up because they had uh, carriages. They they had a monopoly of the carriage trade. Well, along comes the car, and uh, they all start to lose their fortune. And uh, the, the the sort of young entrepreneurial car manufacturers come along and. Think of IBM versus Microsoft, and you know, blah, blah, blah. We can sort of understand that. So, uh, Okay, last, last one, and thank you so much, everyone, for sending these comments in. Uh, he wrote, very good videos. I, I can certainly feel and relate to your indignation. I felt the same way about the state all my grown life, and it is soothing to listen to the words of someone who has the guts and clarity of mind to tell the truth to others. Again, thank you very much. Uh, I really, really appreciate those. And everybody else who sent in comments uh, through uh, YouTube, um, it, is, uh, it is a very, very interesting view to see uh, what, uh, you, what, what the thought processes are of people as a whole. I'm in a unique position, and a very privileged position. I read almost everything that comes my way. So I really, really do. So thank you so much for everyone. And just before we move on with the Sunday show, uh, I did a, uh, a podcast recently on Anthony Weiner, and uh, wanted to to um, uh, correct myself. I said that the uh, U.S.-U.K. blockade had uh, caused the deaths of uh, five million Iraqi children. That is not correct. Uh, estimates are, in fact, between five hundred thousand and one million. Um, if anyone's interested, the mistake came because in one article I wrote, I converted that to the number of American children who would have had to die as an equivalence. That number stuck in my head. So I'm very, very sorry about that. And thank you for those who pointed out that it's well worth correcting. And um, since the, um, the title of the, um, the video was Don't Tweet Your Meat, uh, some people sent me uh, something um, which uh, I will not be able to do, to do justice to, but which I will attempt to do now. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> 
pudding if you don't tweet your meat? All right. Uh, my question involves Bitcoin. Uh, there's been a lot of rage about Bitcoin uh, now that the value has been going up due to speculators. Um, I take kind of a contrary position. While I think that Bitcoin is a really good exercise in an alternative currency and maybe a private currency that I think we should strive for, I don't think that the, the specific implementation of Bitcoin is very good because it is still um, not backed by anything. And it seems like whenever I try to uh, bring out Austrian uh, theories to people about money and currency, they always chastise me. Like anyone who is against Bitcoin automatically gets um, uh, just chastised by people. Uh, and it seems like these people are more of the computer science nature and less of the economic kind of mindset. So I was wondering if you could just uh, set the record straight on Bitcoin and why, uh, even though it's a private currency and that's really good you know, for, for free market principles, I still think it's bad as a currency in and of itself because it is not backed by anything uh, just like gold or silver. Like, there, like, it cannot be used for anything else other than as a trading medium, whereas gold and silver has industrial uses, etc. Do you think that you could maybe articulate what I'm trying to say better, or maybe if you disagree, uh, give your reasons why? Well, sure. So, um, I mean, this is way back. Aristotle came up with um, these uh, five, uh, five characteristics of what a, a currency should be. And uh, one of the ones is what you're talking about, which is um, that it should be something that can be used for something else, right? So um, I guess back when they used seashells, um, <laughs> they uh, they didn't really, um, uh, you know, couldn't really use seashells for anything else. And so that's one of the things that um, that he said that uh, that it should have. It should be divisible without you losing its value, right? So you can divide up gold, you can melt it back together, it doesn't lose its value, unlike something like a, a diamond or a, a cow. You can't divide up a cow and have it not lose value. And there were a bunch of other sort of uh, things that uh, Aristotle uh, wanted to uh, talk about in terms of, of, of currency. And your issue with Bitcoin is that it's, it's purely digital, right? It's a peer-to-peer -peer currency. Its only value is, is trade-based. And it, has, it, it is not a reflection of any hard assets, and therefore it can't really be said to have value except in the mind of people who use it, whereas you would prefer to use a currency that has value outside of just the minds or the preferences of the people who use it. Is that a fair thing to say? Uh, yes, it is. And like I said, I'm not you know, against Bitcoin. Like I would never use Bitcoin for anything other than donations. However, I think that it's good that it exists as a an exercise of free market private currency, I just don't think that it's a very good one, currency. And so you would prefer it to, to be to be based on, on gold, right? Well, I would prefer a currency based on uh, something that has uh, perhaps industrial uses, like gold or silver or any of the uh, the other elements. Now, tell group. me why it is that you why is it that you say that Bitcoin is a free market currency? Well, because um, it's it's a I would say it's I don't I don't want to say free market currency. It's just a uh, it's a currency that uh, I guess can compete uh, that is in competition that has the ability to be competed against other currencies. Uh, it's not uh, it's not uh, how do you say it? It's not forced upon people by government. 
there's there's no monopoly. You see what I'm saying? Well, but it's it's defined by a monopoly, right? I mean, what, I, I would I would argue that there's no human currency that can exist, certainly in America, that is not fundamentally defined by the government's monopoly on currency, right? So there's the guy who came up with the Liberty Dollar, who just got like what 15 years in prison uh, for daring to use the word dollar. Uh, as if the U.S. government didn't just take it from some other place. So the fact is that I don't believe that a currency based on gold would be uh, allowable in the existing system, right? So if you if you and I sat down and said, well, let's let's start making Steph bucks or your name bucks or whatever, and we're going to back it with gold and we're going to circulate it around and we're going to stamp on it and we're going to say B-U-X or maybe we'll call them, you know, uh, phalangeramas or whatever, right? So, and, and this is going to be a new currency – uh, you know, about eight minutes after we launched, we'd have a knock at the door from uh, whoever was running the government currency uh, saying, you know, uh, cease or die, right? Sure, that's uh, to be expected. Right. So so Bitcoin, I would argue, is not a free market currency because it, it can't have any fixed assets. Because the moment that you have fixed assets uh, backing your currency, you then have something that the government can come in and take, Right. Yeah, I argue, though, that there are uh, ways of designing a currency such that it is more distributed, uh, unlike the Liberty Dollar. Well, and that would be Bitcoin, right? But I still don't think that Bitcoin is an example of a free market currency because it is specifically, well, I shouldn't say specifically, it is virtually disallowed from backing itself up with hard assets, right? Because the moment it does so, it needs to keep them somewhere, and then the government's going to come and, uh, and take them, right? Most likely. Sure. So saying that this is that the, the, the this is a free market currency that has problems is problematic because it's not a free market currency because it, it's not allowed to have assets back. It's not allowed to have gold backing it up, right? However, in the absence of government, it would be a free market currency. But in the absence of government, uh, it probably would have some assets backing it up. Or see, th- this is the interesting thing as well. The most important thing I think about Bitcoin or the free market aspect of it is. The, the most essential aspect of Bitcoin is that you're free to not use it. Correct. Right? That, yes. that, is, yes. that is the only free market aspect of Bitcoin that to me means anything, is that you're free to use it or to not use it. And uh, that, that's the only aspect. So if you don't like Bitcoin, then you don't have to use it. But if you don't like fiat currency, well, you have to use it, right? So, uh, so I would say that Bitcoin is a huge step up in that you can say, I don't like it, and, and so on, right? But, but the interesting thing is that I still think that you are falling prey to a sort of statist paradigm, right? So, so tell me a, few, a food that you really dislike. Dislike? Yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously Brussels sprouts because you're a carbon-based life form, but, but what else? Yeah, so I really don't like anything that ends in NAM. So I don't like ham, lamb, spam, or yams. Ah, okay, okay. So, uh, but I bet you don't get into big arguments with people about whether they should or shouldn't eat them, right? Uh, no. Right, so the interesting thing is that you're getting into arguments with people about Bitcoin. And that's falling into a status paradigm. There's lots of products that you don't like, I bet. And you don't, uh, you know, uh, you don't sort of get, probably get into big arguments saying people shouldn't go and buy them. Because, they're, you know, you're free to exercise your choice about what you want to uh, buy. Well, it seems, it seems like uh, to me that a lot of people are, uh, are telling other people to use it, um, and they, they claim that, you know, 
they have this great economic understanding of how things work, but it, it seems like their arguments aren't, uh, you know, they, they don't really mesh with mine, and they're, they're or they might, they might say uh, uh, that that it's Austrian economics that uh, that they're following or that they're that they're preaching from, and it's really not. You know what I no, mean? no, look, Austrian, Austrian economics does not say that a currency has to be backed by gold or any other fixed asset at all. I can guarantee, and anybody well, who well, says that Austrian economics says that that is the case doesn't understand Austrian economics. Austrian economics says that the initiation of force should not be used in financial transactions. And so, we, we all, look, we all understand that if there were two currencies, right, let's call it currency Bob and currency Doug, and everything was exactly the same except currency Bob needed 500 tons of gold in a vault that it needed to guard and could cash, the people could cash in at every time. So everything about, else about the currency was the same. I can guarantee you that currency Bob would fail the free market test precisely because it was backed by a fixed asset, which is additional overhead to run the currency. You've got to get the gold, buy it, which means you've got to pa- pass those costs along to the consumer. You have to store it. You have to guard it. You have to have a mechanism whereby it can be delivered to people who want to cash in the currency. So all other things being equal, a currency that can operate without fixed assets backing it up is, is, is hugely more efficient than a currency that requires a fixed asset to back it up. Now, whether such a currency would ever be generally accepted or not, I don't know. It's, it's hard, hard to predict. But I will say that there would be massive economic drivers for there to be a currency not backed by anything because it would be so much cheaper to have a currency not backed by anything. And as long as no force or fraud was used in the dissemination of that currency, then for sure. But yeah, I guarantee you, any, anybody who figures out how to have a currency that is not backed by fixed assets is going to dominate the market because it'll be so much cheaper to have that currency than any other currency. So Bitcoin may be exactly how uh, future currency works. I don't know. But, but for sure, there's would going you, to be massive you, economic drivers to keep fixed assets out of the currency mechanism. I would like to clarify uh, just definitions with you uh, before we proceed. When you talk about backed by, do you imply that that means the same as uh, having a use other than as a currency? Yeah, 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 sure. I mean, look, there's very few people are going to want to cart around gold bars in their pockets, right? Uh, They're going to want some sort of chit, some sort of, right, um, uh, some sort of uh, payment scheme that is uh, electronic or so they don't actually have to carry the asset around because it's inconvenient. And that's fine. And that's fine. There's, There's nothing wrong with, like, online banking or anything like that. You know, I'm not, I'm not against that. Um, it, it just seems like um, the, the people, it's like they're trading a commodity, but it doesn't actually ex- uh, exist. It, or, or, excuse me, it doesn't have a, um, another use that that commodity could be used for. Right. For example, if, you know, if I have oil, I can trade the oil or I can refine it or I can do, you know, many other things with it. And I'm sure, you know, you understand that. But it's just, um, it's just, I guess I just get frustrated um, by, you know, when we try to make this argument, uh, you know, people just uh, attack us, you know, just, you know what I mean? I just, I just well, get no, frustrated. But sorry, I, I just, I don't think you're, you're getting the argument that I'm making. And I'm not saying my argument is correct, but I really want you to, to understand it. You understand that if a currency is not 
backed by anything or convertible into anything else that is economically more efficient if you can get people to adopt it, right? Like if it's, uh, okay. if it's pure, purely digital yeah. dollars are much more economic, they're much cheaper as currency. And you want, you know, you want your currency be, to be as cheap as possible. So if you have a purely digital currency that has nothing, nothing in the real world, right? Not, not even a stock certificate. It's simply bits and bytes floating around, you know, in, in your wallet or in your computer or on some server. If you could have a purely digital currency with no convertibility or use to any other thing, that would be about as cheap a currency as you could possibly get. And if you can make that work, you will absolutely win out against gold-based or gold-backed currencies because it's, you know, it's going to be virtually free to use, whereas the gold currencies is going to be a couple of percentage points on every transaction to pay for the costs of buying and storing and transferring and transporting all of the gold. So, so my argument is that it doesn't matter whether something is backed or not. There's ways to overcome the gold standard. The gold standard is simply don't print fiat money. That's all the gold standard really fundamentally means. And there's ways to have a digital currency where you don't print fiat currency, where you're not overprinting. And so I imagine that you'd have to pay a few more accountants and a few less metallurgists so that you could convince the public that your currency was not being inflated. Uh, but if you could do that, then the Bitcoin model would win over the gold standard uh, every time. Okay, well, the, I guess the only, you know, I don't, uh, I don't really have a, a response to that specifically, but I will say that uh, the market has created many ways of lowering the overhead of doing transactions in hard currencies uh, that are just bits and bytes and digital, because a lot of times the gold doesn't move around, it doesn't physically get transported, it's just, it's in one vault, it's with a, you know, it's got a certificate of authenticity, and then people just trade it, you know, back and forth online from there, but it always exists in a reserve somewhere, like a allocated gold. You know, so I think that there are, um, uh, while I can't really argue uh, against the fact that uh, Bitcoin's are, uh, have little overhead, you know, I can say that, you know, gold, uh, you know, and, and other things, the, the market has found a way to make them uh, efficient enough to be viable in the market. Well, sure, but you still have the overhead of buying all the gold to begin with. And if, as, you, as your currency expands to, right, as, as in a free market, of course, the economy would grow, uh, I would guess, 8 to 12% a year, because that's what even relatively free markets in the third world. Now, that may be diminishing returns over time, as Tyler Cowen has argued that the low-hanging fruit of economic development has already uh, been achieved, so maybe that would diminish over time. So you would need to expand your currency in a, in a free market to match production. Otherwise, you would get deflation, which is hard to predict, and nobody really – everybody wants stable currency over time. That's you the, can't that's really the, do that with Bitcoin because it's, it's – mathematically, it's just going to go to an asymptote, and then it's just going to stop. So I don't. The, I, I, sorry, so, I don't know enough. Uh, tell, tell me how uh, how is the currency um, generated, so to speak, in in Bitcoin? Uh, technically speaking, uh, there is a a mathematical problem uh, that is that has a difficulty level, and the all the clients agree to the same rules. The only re the, the reason why Bitcoin works is because all the clients are all the same and they're all following the same rules. You have this mathematical problem with a certain level of difficulty. It takes a computer a certain amount of time to compute the answer to that mathematical problem. 
And the way that the, uh, the difficult, what the, what the client is set to do is to automatically normalize or, or average out the amount of time it takes for new bitcoins to be created by increasing the difficulty level. And they do, and the, 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 the delta, the, how much the difficulty level gets raised is uh, computable by all the clients and all the clients can agree on it. So if you start creating, uh, if you start solving this mathematical problem and you get awarded bitcoins for it, all the clients are going to see that and everyone's going to up their difficulty level in such a way that it averages out that about every 10 minutes, somebody, somebody's computer solves the problem. And additionally, every year, the amount of Bitcoins that you get awarded to you for solving that problem diminishes. Uh, I believe it goes like 50, 25, you know, and then it just goes down from there and, you know, asymptotically until you get to, to, to nothing. So over time, it's asymptotically going to grow and then just, you know, level off and there's not going to be any more growth. The amount of Bitcoins in circulation is going to be static. Right. Okay. So there's a way of limiting it based on computer cycles and the toughness of problems and to make sure that people don't fiat up their currency by buying some cray, you get diminishing results of new Bitcoins every time you solve the problem. And in theory, you could could create more Bitcoins by making sure that every single person changes their client because the only reason why Bitcoin works is because you have a bunch of people collectively running the same software that follows the same rules. Right, right. Okay, okay. Well, so, yeah, maybe you know, that, look, uh, I don't, I, maybe that's a good solution. Maybe, maybe it isn't. Uh, I generally would prefer uh, a solution wherein, you know, a bunch of econom- economists measured output and uh, tried to figure out how to match currency to, to keep prices as stable as humanly possible. That, that would be my preferred uh, solution, whether it's the valid one or not, I don't know, but that's the one I would look for. But, um, but yeah, look, I mean, the fact that you don't like certain aspects of Bitcoins means that in a free market, I would be more prone to choose a non current a non hard asset backed currency and you would be prefer you would prefer a hard asset backed currency and i think that's perfectly great I, you know that's the that's you know, cool. it's, yeah, I'm, I'm totally, yeah i'm totally cool with everyone making their own choices as to what currency they want to use i guess i'm just more frustrated from an academic perspective and i you know I, and if somebody wants to use it they can go ahead but you know just uh, when people start making the academic arguments i get just so you know and and especially the non academic arguments like you're an idiot etc you know it just gets a little frustrating how uh you know how much everyone goes against you if you say you're against bitcoins like you know as if you know you 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 are some status monster but you, but you sorry know, but you're not you're not against bitcoins Right, because if people okay, want to use uh, well, yeah, I'm against perfectly Bitcoin valid, you would prefer you would prefer a hard asset backed currency, right? Okay, yes, I'm 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 against Bitcoin for my own personal finances. Yeah, you you prefer a hard asset backed currency. Other people, and so you're willing to pay the overhead that such a currency would require, and other people would want less overhead and would want cheaper transactions, right? Yeah, I don't know if that's the reason why they do it. Um, I mean, I think that a lot of people find value in Bitcoin not because of the efficiency, but rather because of the semi-anonymous nature of it. The fact that you know it's very difficult to trace if you know what you're doing. Um, you, you know, yeah, that like it's, I think it's that there's kind a couple of, of senators in the U.S. who are 
starting to think about going after Bitcoin because there's some website where you can order illegal drugs coming in through the Tor network, which is uh, apparently an anonymous network. You can then uh, uh, order drugs and have them delivered to you using Bitcoin and a uh, encrypted Tor connection. And right. uh, yeah, look, I mean, people, people they don't. I don't think. I don't think that they like it because of the efficiency aspect. I think they like it because of the SU government aspect of it. And uh, you know, is, I think yeah, that there no, are. Sorry, many, sorry to interrupt, but but this this I think is why I would argue that it's not a free market currency. A free market, like a free market currency, is going to exist when there isn't a government monopoly squeezing it off into the sidelines and and determining a lot of what it's all about. Could right. you restate that a different way? Sure. If people are saying, I like bitcoins because it's a massive screw you to the government, then it's not a free market currency because people are just using it because they're sick and tired of fiat currency, not because they love bitcoin in isolation, right? It's like revenge sex, right? I mean, you're really mad at your ex and you go and bang her sister. Uh, it's not like you're really attracted to the sister. You just want to get back at the ex. It's not exactly a free market bang, so to speak, right? Well, I guess. I mean, it, I guess it depends. I mean, if, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I guess if they're using it, does it really matter why they're using it? It's just the fact that they, that they use it? Sorry, somebody's just asked me if I want to tell, tell everyone more about revenge sex. Well, I mean, that's obviously when you use your right hand. That's revenge sex, you know, because your left hand's been a bit slappy. But anyway, we can sort of get back to that. Um, but no, I, I think it's important just to remember that um, people's ability to choose or reject currency is exactly right. I, I mean, I think that in the future, people who have lots of money are going to prefer a gold-backed currency. And people who don't have a lot of money probably won't care that much and probably will want, like all people who don't have as much money, they're more interested in price than quality. And so they probably will want uh, a, a non uh, asset-backed currency because it's much cheaper for them to go and buy a pack of gum that way. Whereas people who are signing 99-year leases on multi-million dollar buildings, they probably want to do that in a currency that is backed by something harder. So I imagine that there will be perhaps even class divisions among currency preferences. Um, so, I, you know, everybody can be right. That's the beautiful thing about the free market. Yeah, and that's totally fine. Um, you know, that's, you know, I guess uh, we've, we've, I guess we've almost exhausted um, you know, the, the topic of Bitcoin, it's just, you know, just to, to summarize, I'm, I'm totally cool with everyone using whatever they want. You know, I, you know, I just get frustrated when people, uh, like chastise and, and do those kinds of things. And they, uh, you know what I'm saying? So, Oh, listen, and of but, course, if people are calling you an idiot for questioning the value of Bitcoins or suggesting alternatives, then the problem is not probably with Bitcoins, but with the people you may be debating with. So you might want to rethink that as a strategy. But yeah, no, listen, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I really, yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I love that cartoon. I mentioned it at least once a year on this show where this uh, guy's sitting fiercely typing at his computer and his wife's like, honey, are you coming to bed? And he's like, no, no, there's somebody who's still wrong on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we have to avoid those temptations for sure. But um, yes, yeah, I, I well, appreciate yeah, that. I've had some for... questions about Bitcoin, and I, I really appreciate you bringing it up. And I really appreciate the explanation of how they're generated. I think that's very interesting. Oh, yeah, no problem. Anytime. Uh, thanks for taking my call today. My pleasure. Thank you for calling in. All right. Do we have – we can either – I can take questions if you're a good typist. Of course, I can take questions in the chat room. Okay. Somebody's written, how does human child abuse fit into the Darwinian theory? <laughs> it isn't just a theory, yeah. <laughs> a tribe that dumps down and makes its children unhealthy can't compete with a tribe that doesn't. Aggression isn't an answer. Uh, 
lions can rip us apart in seconds, they fail to become the dominant species. Brains mostly win over body. That is a great, great question. That is a great question. Ah, you people. You people are just too bright. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a pause to think, uh, to, <laughs> to, to come up with something hopefully vaguely intelligent before uh, I, I open my mouth. Well, the Darwinian theory, of course, would have to argue that there was – look, if Lloyd DeMoss and the psychohistorians are correct, uh, and I think they are. I mean, I think there's enough evidence, though, you know, certainly always open to contrary evidence. Then they say that child abuse has been virtually all-pervasive. Actually, no, he would say all-pervasive because he's had a $10,000 reward out there about anyone who can find a parent before the 16th or 17th century who would not be convicted of child abuse now. Uh, and so far, I think over 40 years, no one's come up to collect that money. So they would say that uh, child abuse was omnipresent throughout human history up until pretty modern times. And so it must have had some adaptive, some positive adaptive strategy. And look, uh, the, um, the reality is that human history begins with dictatorship, right? The tribe, as people say, well, where did the state evolve? No, no, no. We're trying to hack back the state from human affairs. And the state, um, in terms of you know, hierarchical, usually age-based dominance, the state has been around from the very beginning. The Stone Age tribes were statist because they had no – they didn't have the two ingredients. That is the opposite of statism. Two ingredients that are the opposite of statism. Private property rights and the non-aggression principle. Well, if child abuse is prevalent throughout history, certainly the non-aggression principle is violated from the very beginning. And if the non-aggression principle is violated from the very beginning, there's precious damn little that you can do with society as a whole if that is the case. Uh, so there certainly was no private property other than a few inconsequential personal items throughout most of human history, and there was certainly no commitment to the non-aggression principle, and there was certainly no philosophy because superstition and religiosity and you know, <laughs> culture in the way that I use it dominated human history up until very, very recent times. So, uh, so the question is, what is adaptive in that kind of environment? Well, in that kind of environment, conformity is adaptive, right? In other words, most tribes had rituals that if you didn't follow them, you would be killed. You would be killed. And, of course, you can simply look at the Old Testament for proof on this, that any father... Uh, sorry, any child who, who deconverts from a religion uh, can be killed. Any child who, uh, sp who speaks up against his father can be killed. Unbelievers can be killed. Witches can be killed. Sorcerers can be killed. Apostates can be killed. A lot of, uh, a lot of murder. <laughs> a lot of murder commandments in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Of course, you know, thou shalt not kill. But I think that just means people who agree with you to the point of just being a mirror. So in human history, conformity to tribal rituals, to tribal culture was absolutely necessary. And if you didn't conform, then you would, uh, you would be killed. Or you would be ostracized from your tribe, which effectively meant you had to go and make it on your own in the woods. And whether you survived or not didn't really matter because your genes wouldn't be reproduced, wouldn't be passed along anyway. So ostracism versus murder, uh, to a large degree, they're pretty much the same when it comes to biology. Uh, in neither situation do your further genes get transmitted. So, you know, what is it that causes children to be terrifyingly 
conformist to their cultural ideologies. Well, uh, child abuse, of course, right? So it has that adaptation. Uh, secondly, of course, uh, states are violent. And states in a situation of increasing want tend to be increasingly violent. The way that you bond together your tribe when your leadership is throwing everybody into the shitter is you start a war, right? This is always the case, that when something goes wrong at the top, they start a war. And of course, as America launches more bombs into Yemen, we can see now that this is the fourth one in the Middle East that they're starting up, because remember, they hate, they hate Americans for their freedom. So, uh, so if you want to start a war, then what you need is people who um, have very enlarged amygdala and very small neofrontal cortexes, right? So you need people who have a very enlarged fight-or-flight mechanism, who can pump gallons of adrenaline into the body, and who have almost no impulse control and very little ability to coherently assess risk and to defer action for fear of consequences. I mean, that's really what war is all about. And to breed those kinds of warriors, you need to abuse children. Abuse against children has the scientifically documented result of increasing the amygdala, the fight-or-flight mechanism, and, uh, of course, harming the hippocampus or memory uh, issues within the brain and diminishing the neofrontal cortex or the seat of higher reasoning. So you end up with highly predatory, efficient killing machines. Uh, so that is, and this is well known, this is, of course, occurs in daily and monstrous tragedy around the world where uh, children are forced to murder either their parents or siblings or other children in order to be inducted into the gruesome undead hordes of child soldiers. One of the greatest tragedies, not only for what it does in the present, but for what it does to the future of these societies. Absolutely monstrous. So that's just a very brief overview that the, the, two, the two prime results of child abuse that would fit, I think, the Darwinian theory in a state where, or in a situation of uh, roving local violent statism is that you get conformity and hair-trigger violence. Uh, and that, uh, I think, serves, serves it very well. It's, you know, it's only in the recent centuries, and you could even argue shorter than that, that raising children peacefully had any benefit at all. I think it would have a huge negative for most, at most times throughout history. One of the reasons humanity is so successful as a species is we, we adapt from conception onwards to prepare for our local environment. It's an amazing thing. And I think that we're, the, we're certainly the only species that does that, to my knowledge, to the degree that we do it. Right? So there's studies that show that women who experience hunger, significant hunger while children are in the womb, have more aggressive children. Of course they do. Of course they do. Because the human organism is assessing its future social, economic, and political environment almost from the moment of conception onwards. It is scanning through its tight integration into the biomechanics of the mother system. It is scanning. It is using the mother as a sonar, as a, a tricorder to scan the surrounding system. Am I going to grow up in a situation where food is plentiful or in an environment where food is scarce? Well, if food is plentiful, then I'm going to get the most value out of being a peaceful trader. If food is scarce, I'm going to get the most value about being an aggressive hunter. And so the brain is adapting to the environment based upon the cues provided by the maternal system. And so we can adapt to various environments 
in a way that is not multi-generational, is not evolutionary in that sense, but is based upon cues received by the growing fetus from the mother herself. It's astounding, just amazing. So that would be my, uh, my answer, and I hope that makes, uh, makes some sense. Yes, he has written, uh, Lloyd de Moss quote, the source of most human conflict, sorry, the source of most human violence and suffering has been a hidden children's holocaust throughout history, whereby billions of innocent human beings have been routinely murdered, bound, starved, raped, mutilated, battered, and tortured by their parents and other caregivers so that they grow up as emotionally crippled adults and become vengeful time bombs who periodically restage their early traumas in sacrificial rites called wars. Yeah, that is from Lloyd DeMoss, and uh, I believe that is, that is very true. As somebody has written, uh, I notice that an enormous amount of disagreement I encounter with other people in my life comes from differing word definition. Often words have numerous similar but significantly different meanings. For example, you use the word culture in a slightly different way than most people in most instances. I'm curious what strategies you use to avoid this problem in discussion. Well, uh, that's, that's a great question. And um, what I do if anyone begins to best me in an argument is simply to redefine me as correct and go from there. Uh, no, I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, you have to do definition. So if I'm using the word culture in a way that's different, I'll mention that I'm using it in a way that's different. This is show 1930 or something, some god-awful number like that. So, um, so I, wanna, I think most people know what I mean when I talk about culture. But uh, you, uh, you try to define your terms. If you're using them in a non-traditional way, then the onus is on you to define your terms. Right? So if, if I'm going to use taxation to mean theft when most people think it means the price we pay for civilization, then it's up to me to make the definition that I'm using clear. So if you're going to use words in a non-standard way, it's your job to make that definition clear. Steph, what has happened to other societies after they have hit the 100% debt-to-GDP point? Well, two things. Well, I guess three, one of which remains rather theoretical. The first is hyperinflation, the second is war, and the third is uh, actually reducing the size, power, and scope of government. The third one remains largely theoretical, but could be, could be possible. And this is after they've bled as many other cultures dry as they can, right? Which is something that's more modern. There was no IMF around in Germany in the 1920s during the hyperinflation of the Weimar time, so. Steph? Yes. Yes, uh, I would like to ask you a question. Uh, I would like to get your opinion uh, on something. Um, Half a year ago, I was... um, together with my uncle and a cousin and I was telling a story to them that happened to me when I was young with my father so um, um, oh you cannot hear me no you're good go ahead okay Um, so um, what happened was that yeah I was like 11 12 years old and I was in the boarding school uh, together with my brother I was sleeping in the same room and we, we were like fighting every evening but also in a funny way we had fun with it that was how it was and one evening the priest uh, of the boarding school he came in because we were making a lot of noise and and he said be quiet and then he went out again and then uh, at the end of the week we went home and our father he he took us apart uh, and he gave us a sexual education with the book how the body was and all that and then he asked if I had uh, had oral sex with my brother. 
And I'm sorry, your father asked if you'd had oral sex with your brother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so the so because so the priest had called him, and he had said that I was giving oral sex to my brother, but that was not the case. We were fighting with each other, <laughs> uh, and he was sitting on me. Uh, uh, but that was not the case. And I do remember from that day, I was like, no, I was shocked that he asked that, and and I said no, and 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 that was that. But afterwards, I really felt like. How could he? he? I didn't even felt believed in it, you know. It was really like oh, so that you, you said, of course we weren't, and you felt that your father didn't believe you. Is that right? No, no, yeah, he didn't believe me, or it felt like it. And also all the other uh, people there in that family, uh, the 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 step mom that we had, and 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 the step son, and no, it was really like this happened. This is true, you know. Right. And I was, yeah. And a half a year ago, I was telling this story to 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 uh, to to this uncle and to this cousin. And oh, something is popping up here. Voilà. Uh, and 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 I became actually angry at it because they continued to laugh with it, like Mark. Yeah, yeah funny story, funny story. But I noticed I, I became really angry about it, and I'm actually wondering, like, what is the abuse here? Is there abuse, or is this abuse, or, or? Well, I look. I, I I would certainly say that. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a strange thing to even talk about. But you know, if if the priest said to your father that he saw you having oral sex with your brother when this wasn't the case, then I mean, that's just wretched beyond words. I mean, that's just a staggering thing to say. It's not too surprising to me that a priest would have a bizarre reaction to. Like in some sort of sexual context, I know the sexual context wasn't you and your brother, of course, but that there would be something funny going on between a priest uh, and and sexuality, right? Um, you know, to to get someone to want to frighten to, to to want to frighten and lie to children, right? So a priest, their job is to terrify the children into conformity because they're a hangover from prehistory almost. Well, you have to get to be, that priest to be deeply unhappy and deeply at war with himself and. Uh, repressed and to do that is very easy to to make somebody repressed and angry and destructive is very easy all you have to do is you have to to tell that human being that every single natural impulse that every single natural impulse that he has is evil that sets him at war with himself with his basic human nature with his with any chance that he might have for happiness so you tell him that a desire is bad. You tell him that sex is bad. You tell him that uh, aggression even is bad. You tell him that if he is wronged, he should never ever retaliate because we have a natural and I think just desire for retaliation to wrongs that are done to us. You tell him that that is bad. And then you change the story all the time. You change the story all the time, right? So uh, you give him turn the other cheek in one situation and then you give him an eye for an eye in another situation, right? So you, you tell someone, you should never seek any redress for rungs done against you, right? And then if that person dis- displeases you, then you attack them. And then they say to you, well, wait a second, you told me not to seek vengeance for wrongs done to you, but now you're seeking vengeance against me for a wrong you've perceived I've done to you. And he's like, well, yeah, but, but then you say, but I'm pointing to this part called an eye for an eye. 
And then you, you just completely screw with his head at every opportunity so that he feels wrong about everything, so that every impulse he has, every natural human instinct he has, he immediately checks and questions and opposes and undermines and attacks so that he's endlessly punching himself like a dog chasing his own tail round and round, burrowing himself into the endless earth of self-hatred, discontent, and a vague inner spiritual itchiness that he can never quite scratch. And once you've got somebody in that situation, you just turn them loose on kids and the virus reproduces. It goes out of his mouth like any cold or flu or airborne virus, goes through his mouth, through language, and replicates itself through the nesting snakes of polysyllabic abuse into the children's minds where they then have natural impulses and instincts that are continually opposed and undermined and attacked till they end up at war with themselves and discontented and angry and never can relax and never can take satisfaction in their own existence. And then they too will turn and spew that same toxic venom on those who come after them and the cycle goes round and round and it's as long as religion is long. And if it's not religion, then it's socialism or Marxism or statism or some other nonsense. So I would say that for sure it is not... I mean, it was, it's outrageous beyond words that the priest would say this to, to your father. It's outrageous beyond words that your father would take this with any seriousness. And it's outrageous beyond words, in my opinion, that your family would consider this a joking matter. It's not. It's not a joking matter. It is not a joking matter to me that your parents put you in the care of somebody willing to say something absolutely slanderous and outrageous, like you had oral sex with you, you were having oral sex with your brother. I mean, this is completely astounding. Uh, if, if, if my daughter, I mean, I can't even imagine it, but if my daughter, if I put my daughter under the care of somebody who told me something like that, I, I, I would be beside myself. I would feel terrible. Like how on earth could have I, I exposed my children to a twisted, malevolent soul like this? And um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of stuff that's problematic. And, uh, you know, I, I always suggest, you know, be honest with your family. If this topic comes up, say, look, this is, this is really painful for me. I don't, I don't consider this a laughing matter. This, this has a lot of pain if this is the case. Whatever the case is for your emotional experience, think of this is it. If it's not, then, then obviously tell them the truth about what it is. But say, this, this really bothers me. This is not something that I find funny at all. And uh, it's always bothered me, and uh, I'd like to talk about it. You know, that, that's my suggestion. I mean, you can do whatever you want, but that, I think, is, is the most honest thing to say at the time. Still, I am very, very bothered by it. And, um, like, I'm wondering, the typical defense that, that they would use is, yes, but how can I know if it's true or not true? Um, say it is true. And imagine that uh, it would be true. Um, how would you, that, or that it could be true? How, how would you handle that in a proper way as a parent? Like, if like say it would happen with your daughter, um, and and you think it might have happened. How, no, no, how no, 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 no. Listen, I mean, uh, I mean, it, it, sibling incest wouldn't just pop up for no reason. So that's um, yeah, that's. I mean, this, 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 this. You know, I'm no expert, but my understanding is that the amount of trauma that people would have to go through in order for there to be sibling incest would be pretty enormous. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you have a healthy and functioning household, it's just not going to happen. So I don't think you could just say, well, what if it did? I mean, a lot of pretty specific circumstances. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And uh, it's interesting that you 
I, I also Sorry, had a dream. One other example, yeah? just, just to be clear, right? So let's say that um, my daughter is playing in some other girl's house, and the, the I don't know, the parent comes up and says, your, your daughter was involved in torturing another child or whatever, right? I'd be like, no, she wasn't. No, she wasn't. Of course she wasn't. Of course she wasn't. Like, it's not, it's not even a question for me whether she would or wouldn't be involved in torturing another child. It's not going to happen. Because it takes a lot of messed up stuff to happen to a kid for the kid to get involved in torturing another child. It doesn't just... It, it would be exactly the same as if she goes and plays at some Chinese family's house and the mom then comes and says, you know, your, your daughter started speaking to me in, in fluent Mandarin. I'd be like, no, she didn't. No, she didn't. Of course she didn't because she's never learned Mandarin. She doesn't know how to speak Mandarin. And so if bizarre, dysfunctional, weird stuff like, like torture and, and sibling incest, and, uh, no, no, she doesn't speak that. She doesn't speak that language. It doesn't happen. It's not, not, not possible. So, um, yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's uh, pretty much and, – and what I would do, of course, is uh, uh, recognize the nature of the person who was telling me that uh, and, and what they were up to. Yeah, because he he like he 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 didn't even believe us when we said no, it didn't happen. So it's like double double insult. Uh, first yeah, so then why ask, pass. right? Yeah? Why ask, Sorry? right? If you're not going to believe, why ask? So anyway. But indeed, I think I, I, I'm so angry about it because it's really breaking of trust that he did in such in like one hour. He totally broke the trust. Um, well, I have to think about it, but yeah, um, I, I'm really glad to hear how you would respond, yeah, and it makes sense, yeah. Right. Uh, I also had a, a nightmare, actually, because I don't remember a lot of dreams, but that period... Listen, I'm sorry, book, because oh, I've had sorry. some requests that, that dreams can take a long time, so if you want to email oh, okay. it to me, maybe we can talk about it offline, but dreams could take, like, the rest of the show, and some people like them and some people okay. don't, but I, I like them, but... Okay, um, great. Yeah, just send it to me, maybe we can do it, uh, do it offline. Yeah, thanks for this uh, a lot, Steph. You're welcome. Uh, I'm really sorry. I mean, yeah. I certainly believe you. <laughs> if that means anything to you, of course that didn't happen, and I'm so sorry that you didn't get more belief from, from those around you. Yeah, that means a lot. Thank you. Right. Take care. Bye. Yeah, sorry. I, I need to get some new. <laughs> I need to get some new. Uh, uh, some new metaphors. It is. It is, in fact, always with the Mandarin, and I do apologize. I do have a new book coming out. Uh, there's a preview in the. If you're a donator in the bronze press section, I also threw it in the chat room here. I'm very, very pleased with it. Uh, although I still think it could have been funnier, but it's called um, um, uh, The Handbook of Human Ownership, a Manual for New Tax Farmers. Uh, yes, uh, I've got some good uh, good feedback on it. So um, uh, it's uh, I've got the audiobook read. Uh, I've got a video with uh, captions uh, ready. Uh, I'm just making sure, just having people go through it to make sure I didn't accidentally break into ancient Aramaic and thus disprove my own atheism or start speaking in tongues or whatever. So, If you want to get in, uh, just give James uh, a ping with your Skype ID or phone number and you can just whisper it to him in the chat and that's how you can get it. Hey, um, I don't really have a, a question, but I just sort of wanted to, I guess, share... Um, Lately, I've been. Oh, there, there are two things actually. I'm not sure if I want to talk about the the latter. Um, it's more of a current events thing. I want to talk about with the local people first. But um, 
one of the things that I've been processing, you know, to a pretty good extent lately is the effect of my parents' divorce. And I think most of it recently has just been sort of understanding like how long in actuality it was occurring before they actually split, if that makes sense. You mean how long your parents were not, quote, having a marriage before they actually split? Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, um, I mean, and, and of course, it's, it was also not exactly, it wasn't exactly vibrant and, you know, alive before that, but it turns out that their divorce, in terms of, like, you know, a dead marriage, lasts for, like, six years before they actually did split. And um, <laughs> what I'm finding is that there's an awful lot of rage around that. Ang- anger in you about sort of the deadness of your parents' marriage before they got divorced? Yeah, and sort of how that affected, like, like all my social relationships, like the lack of social relationships, all the lack of support in the community, the lack of support that they had for me as a child, you know. Right. And then how that's reflected in um, sort of what, what's going on, you know, in the present day. Right. I know that's really vague, but yeah, yeah. no, it's uh, I I get it. I mean, it may not be that comprehensible to others, but I think I I think I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, divorce has a huge effect on kids, and divorce, of course, is just the tip of the iceberg on the yeah. uh, uh, on because there's this all this stuff that comes beforehand. Like I was, I was reading a, a, I must confess to a mild addiction to Huffington Post, just because I think their their iPod application is really cool, and occasionally I'll sort of browse on there because you can only watch the wheels on the bus go round and round about twelve million times before it starts to seem a little old, and. Um, there was a, a sort of slideshow on, you know, how did you know when it was time to get divorced or whatever? And people just posted the most astounding stuff, you know, um, like, oh, I had to go in for emergency surgery. I was in the hospital for four days. My husband never came to visit once. He only sent me two text messages or whatever, right? And then another one, there was a guy saying, uh, yeah, after my wife and I hadn't had sex for three years, I figured it was pretty much done. And it's like, whoa, three years, <laughs> three years, really? And so there's a whole lot of stuff that comes before the divorce, that has a huge effect on uh, on the family and, and the kids and all of that. So, yeah, I, I don't doubt that it was a massive shadow over the emotional life of the um, uh, of the family. Yeah, yeah. And people are asking questions about specifics, and I'll just you know be really really you know brief about it. Um, the my father dropped the D bomb on their fifth wedding anniversary on the day of actually. Um, so I was like four and a half, ten. So, you know, six years from like the 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 kill shot to you know six years. And of course, by then, like the corpses, like it's not even like a cold body anymore. It's like a you know bones picked clean. In terms of um, that relationship, but there was like a long, long bitterness afterwards as well, which is also part of the divorce. You know, uh, so, and, uh, the bitterness. Uh, what do you mean? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The, the, uh, on the part of uh, my parents, um, my mother especially, was incredibly bitter towards my father. Right. Um, which is in no small part, I'm sure, due to her decision to like, stay in the marriage after my father said he wanted out. But, right. Yeah, so um, when, I, when I mentioned that there was something big, uh, that's like the big thing that's sort of t- occupying a lot of my energy and time. Lately. How do you think it has affected you... Um since oh. 
Well, um, I mean, my last romantic relationship, which is still just Beth, um, there were there were so many parallels in that relationship to like my parents, like marriage. Right. Um, the the there was uh, like by the time Beth and I broke up, it was like again uh, a corpse picked clean, the bones on on the ground. There was like no feeling. It was just melodrama at at the very end. There wasn't anything genuine, organic left. Um, and I mean that's in terms of romantic relationships, but um, I mean I also looked through my school report, which also you know re-triggered some of the stuff. So I, I looked at through some of the school stuff. I had, had a friend over the other day, and um, I mean the the all, all <laughs> the, the there was a this is, this is more of a historical point, but there was a lack of attention to like my most needs as a child and I really have a lot of trouble with a lot of that stuff you know so what sort of basic needs um paying attention like good sleep hygiene good food hygiene um I've got problems with my teeth now you know oh because like oral uh, hygiene and all right yeah 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 it's more, that's more of that's more related somewhat related to diet but also related to you know not going to the dentist as often as I should right so and, and I'm not saying that these are all their fault because, you know, I have adult, I have the knowledge and everything, you know, as an adult to take care of myself. But at the same time, for a long time, I was unconscious about that stuff. And um, does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Self-care. Uh, and uh, how do you think that's related to your parents' divorce in, in particular? Oh, your, the parents' deteriorating relationship. Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I'm not really sure if I have a – nothing's coming up right now about that. Well, let me ask you um, in terms of your parents' modeling of self-care. I mean self-care is not, it's not something we just do or something – I mean something we have to learn. It's like a language mm. again. So, right. I mean, did, did, was self-care modeled by your parents uh, or not, right? I guess that's, that's sort of my question. It was like um, – It's it's not it's not a strict dichotomy, but like, oh no! I mean, no, I mean, the short answer is no, 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 not on neither side. Because my father had like all kinds of addictive behaviors, um, in and out with one thing, and you know, being an addict with alcohol, and then you know, jumping from that to several other things, were becoming a religious addict. And then, yeah, and addiction and self care, kind of antonyms, right? They they don't exactly yeah, go hand in yeah. hand, right? Yeah, and and my mother is you know is not someone who takes care of herself at all. You know, in terms of her, you know, she's obese and smokes right. and drinks and all that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, very much, very clearly, uh, not learned behaviors from my history. Um, I don't know that that relates specifically to the divorce. I that's I think that's more the more of the environment that would have been there whether they got divorced or not. If that makes any sense. Yeah, and you could you could make an argument that in, if the relationship is that dysfunctional, that divorce may actually be a, a form of self care in a weird kind of way, right? Yeah, but it was the most reluctant kind of self care. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I obviously can't I can't say what is occurring for you. I could share with you a few of thoughts of my own experience of of parental divorce, and I mean, I, I grew up in 
you know, I used to call it the matriarchal manors. I mean, it was a series of apartment buildings that were all rent-controlled and were all cheap and were all single moms. I mean, I knew two two families out of the dozens of friends, no, three families out of the dozens of friends that I had whose parents were still together and only one of those where the marriage appeared to be happy. So a happy marriage did not seem to me the commonest of <laughs> pigeons around, right? And uh, so... So that was sort of my my first thought about it was that a an in, intact marriage appeared to be the exception in in the world that I grew up and I think that's pretty common you know because a broken marriage uh, has effects far beyond the mere breakup of the marriage it has significant economic effects and sociological effects and class effects too right you you shift down at least one class possibly two right i mean my dad was a phd professional my mom I had a secretarial degree. So when my mom got custody and my dad went to Africa, uh, yeah, we dropped down to social rungs pretty much, right? We were upper class and we went to lower class. And uh, uh, it took a long time to get back from that. My, my mom never did, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's got massive effects. And that has an effect on everything around you, right? So because you're a lower class, you then have to live in a certain neighborhood. Because you live in that certain neighborhood, you're exposed to certain kinds of dangers and certain negative influences that you wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. You're exposed to other similarly dysfunctional and, and problematic uh, forms of uh, family life and, and so on, right? So it's, it's, it has an effect on, on the whole environment that you, you live in as a kid, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And the other thing that I would say that was hugely tragic for me uh, around the issue of divorce was, you know, I, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very aware of and sensitive to the need for my daughter to respect me. And of course, to never achieve this through fear or intimidation or or just say so or whatever, but for her to to respect me and and to know that I'm not perfect, I make mistakes and all that. But I think that children want to really want to look up to their parents. They really really want to look up to their parents. They want to worship their parents. And the problem with divorce is that it reveals parents as incompetent in a very fundamental way, in a very fundamental way. Because either they were incompetent at the marriage or they were incompetent in choosing the marriage. But either way, they fucked it up, right? Yeah. And, and then what happened to me was because I couldn't respect my mom in this area, that respect, I began to question my respect for her in other areas as well. And then when she would tell me or want me to do stuff, a lot of my basic attitude was, well, who are you to tell me how I should live? Right. You know, I just, I, I, I just, I, I couldn't take a lot of advice with a lot of seriousness. It just seemed to me like an exercise in power. Like she just wanted me to do stuff rather than she had a great and deep knowledge of virtue and goodness and wanted to help me to live a happier and better life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my experience with my father as well, um, for sure. I mean, I don't think I was as 
I mean, I'm not sure what you know what level of awareness you might have had at the moment. I don't think it was that explicit for me, but certainly it was more about, you know, this is not because I respect him, it's because I fear him. Because he's yeah, like if asshole. your life is a disaster, how am I supposed to take instruction from you? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm not going to take language instruction from the guy who can't speak the language. I mean, that would that's a joke, right? And if the parents, if my parents want to teach me the language called "be a good person and do the right thing." And, and it's not the, – the fundamentally, it's not the divorce that was the issue for me fundamentally because, yeah, okay, so the divorce was the divorce. But it was the fact that my parents – I shouldn't say because I, I only talked to my dad once or twice about the divorce. But, but it was that everybody just wanted to pretend like there hadn't been a divorce and my level of respect should continue no matter what. Oh, yeah. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I so the parents get divorced and they say, okay, look, we've really messed up, right? We've really messed up. We've, we've failed at, at being co-parents. We failed at being husband and wife. That is a huge, massive failure. And that has a huge negative impact on you, the child. So let's sit down and talk about it. And let's, you know, we're, we'll try and be honest about what went wrong. We'll try and be honest about the limitations that it's, it's revealed about us. And, and we'll talk about ways that we can move forward and we recognize that we are not going to be very credible in terms of telling you what to do for, uh, until we have rebuilt your respect. So it's not, it's not the divorce itself. It's the pretense that nothing happened afterwards, that, that, that nothing has changed, that I'm still your mom, I'm still your dad, you should still do what it's like, but, but you got divorced, we're not even talking about it. Right, right, right. Now, I, um, I wonder... You know, since since uh, since you you and I have sort of uh, the reverse, uh, it was you lived with your mother, I lived with my father, but I had my mother saying stuff, at least when I was in my twenties, stuff like I'm sure I may have mentioned this before, where it was like she would say, "I think I did a pretty good job for the time I was around," which is like, "But you fucking left, you know, and you fucking just stop being a mother, you know, at, at, you know, well, just and checked out." And, and, of course, um, <laughs> you know, as I've said before, the local pizza place will give you a survey about how well they did. They don't just tell you they did. They, they don't just walk up to you and say, yeah, and that's the best piece of pizza. That, that's a great – I think that's a pretty good piece of pizza. You must be really happy and then walk off. That would be no. ludicrous. What they'll do is they say, how's your, how's your pizza? What do you like? What do you not like? Right? So this is the problem, of course. I, I can't tell my wife whether I'm a good husband or not. I can ask her whether I'm a good husband, whether she likes being married to me. I can't tell my daughter that I'm a good father to her. I can't. I mean, I can, but I mean, how ridiculous is that, right? Like, I can't tell you this is a good podcast. I think it is, and, you know, I try to take feedback, but it's not me to tell you. So, yeah, for parents to say, I, I think I did a pretty good job, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm in the room. The answer that you're looking for is in the room, and all you have to do is ask me, and we can talk honestly about it. Right, right, right. So I, th- no, no. I think there's a lot of heartbreak when, when your parents fall off the pedestal that I think nature intends them to be on. Um, I, I think that's, that's really heartbreaking for a kid. Because now parental authority is no longer respect. It is now power. If, if the fall from grace is not openly discussed and the child's feedback is solicited and it's dealt with in a mature and positive manner, Right, but if it's just like, well, whew, I'm so much happier that we're divorced now. Let's keep moving, and now you've got to do this and go clean your room and go take the garbage out and do this and do that. That's really heartbreaking 
Because now you obey not out of respect, but you obey out of fear or power or guilt or some other thing. And that's very sad because no child wants to do stuff out of fear or guilt or obligation or resentment or whatever, right? Or because the parent has power. We want to do stuff because we get it and we understand it. I mean, I have to do this as myself. Now, Isabella is at the age where I can explain to her why certain decisions are being made, right? You know, so if she wants to climb up on a white couch in the mall with her shoes on, I can stop her and I have to remember that she can do this, right? I have to stop her and say, well, you know, your shoes are on the ground. You, the couch is going to get dirty. People are going to sit there. It's not our couch. I can explain it to her and then she gets it. And then she's not obeying me. She's obeying a reasonable set of expectations, not me, my personal thing but an explanation that is independent of me, that I'm merely delivering, right? right. Like somebody right. delivers a check to me, I don't think that they're giving me money like a charity, right? <laughs> they're just a, and I'm just delivering a, a rule or a perspective to her that is not my power over her. It's not me, my opinion. It's just, these are the facts, right? And most times she gets it. Most times she understands and, and God bless her, she <laughs> doesn't do it again. And uh, that is something that, that we want. But if parents mess up so fundamentally like a divorce or an affair or something and, and then it's not talked about then I think the children's relationship fundamentally shifts uh, and that's that's really tragic right right, right. and and um, in what you were just talking about just there with um, the sadness is I think that there's <laughs> you know there's a still a tremendous amount of grief for me to process in this Grief yeah. and sadness and, and the pain, you know. I, 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 the anger comes, but I don't. I don't know if that's primary. I think that's. I think that comes later. You know, I mean, it, there's there's an injury, but I think it's the injury I still have to work on. Yeah, and the injury is is about the future, right? So, what did it mean for my future? What did it mean for my definition of relationships that my parents got divorced and? You know, when I say that, again, I just want to say that it's not about the divorce. It's about the communication and honesty about it afterwards. But what does it mean? What does it mean about my trust in people that my most foundational relationship shifted from respect to, or maybe there was never respect, I don't know, but to, to, to power, right? What does it mean for me? Uh, are relationships based on power or virtue, right? This is all the way back to podcast 10, I think it was, Power or Virtue, a love right. story, right? Are my relationships based on power or desire, like sexual desire or companionship desire? Is it based on need? Is it based on power? Is it based on virtue? What is a relationship? Right? These are very fundamental questions I think that everybody needs to ask himself or herself. Right? Yeah. What is yeah. a relationship? What is a human relationship? What are they for? Why do we have them? Why, why would we get? Why would I ever get married? Why would I want to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Why would I want to have these things? What are they based on? What, and what am I... What has my experience taught me that they're based on? And what does philosophy ideally say that they should be based on? How far apart are these things and which train track am I on, so to speak, right? Right, right. And um, it, it, the, the relevant touchstone or touch point for you know, present day is not just romantic stuff because I'm not quite there. My initial estimate was a bit off. Uh, it wasn't just going to be a year. I, I've got more to process, but it's got to do with some stuff that's happening in local community, um, and that, that's that's a lot of those questions are coming up about, you know, what does it mean to be in the community to have these relationships, to have that kind of relationship. And my most fundamental community was 
this, you know, this uh, was, was my parents and that was a total failure, worse than failure, you know? Right. 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 And, and what does that mean? Right. We all have these yeah. unconscious things that we, we get about our relationships. And I think that they're correct in the relationships that are, but if we want to change that, then we really have to work on, on getting a new definition, on challenging the old definition. Accepting the old definition was probably correct about the past, but it's not going to be correct mm-hmm. about the future, or we damn well hope that it's not going to be correct about the future. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, thanks for letting me uh, sort of explore that a little bit. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, again, huge, huge props and sympathies. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a real challenge. And I mean, we are far from alone. I mean, this has almost become mm. the norm now. Uh, this yeah, has almost yeah. become the norm now. I mean, uh, how many, you know, less than 50% of marriages stay together now. And I don't think that that's necessarily indicative of how many should stay together because you say, well, some of the people who divorce, maybe they should have stayed together or maybe they could have. Yeah, maybe. But how many of the people who stay together shouldn't? Lots of people, we all know that, right? So uh, a 50% failure rate on relationships that people choose, you understand? That the people are free to engage in and, and people get to test drive for years beforehand if they date, right? There's right. a 50% failure rate on relationships that are purely voluntary where people can leave at any time and that they get to test drive for years beforehand. So what should the, quote, failure rate be for children within a family where children didn't choose the family, never got to test drive them, and couldn't leave? It's an interesting right. question. Yeah. Well, I, think it's, uh, I think it's an essential question. So, yeah, it is, um, uh, it is, uh, it is very challenging. It is a very challenging question. Yes, yes, and, uh, and and thanks again for. And it also it also does a lot of stuff to sibling stuff, right? To sibling relationships as well, oh, which yeah. uh, sibling relationships get very strongly affected by divorce for a whole variety of reasons, right? Because there may be favorites among the parents and the children, and uh, you know sometimes uh, children will blame uh, elder children may blame younger children for additional pressures on the on the family that may have quote resulted in a divorce and so on. Uh, so there's lots of uh, effects. Uh, on on sibling relationships as well as I think very often under underestimated. Yeah, yeah. And just um, I remember ta- I remember talking about this a while ago, but my brother and I had these roles that we had to play. And the moment I tried, I stepped like I, I stuck a toe outside of my role. It was the conversation just shut down. You know, it wasn't even like. And this was before, you know, I had any real conscious knowledge of how to sort of be honest. But um. right, I mean, there's there's uh, uh, as as additional children pile up in a marriage, so I think quite often the marital stresses pile up as well. You know, do the elder siblings then quote blame the younger siblings for causing additional stresses in the marriage? Do they then want to control the spontane- spontaneity of the younger children? Uh, in order to preserve the parents' marriage. Uh, I mean, there's lots of dynamics that go on in a family that is teetering towards the cliff edge of divorce. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, the innocent uh, get blamed and the guilty get praised. That's almost inevitably how things work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, somebody's asked me to elaborate on the sibling relationships. Um, 
when uh, when I get a chance. So I, I and I think I have a little bit. And you understand these are just just my thoughts on on the matter. But um, I think also uh, siblings recognize that. Uh, elder siblings recognize that if the parents get divorced, they're going to have to do a whole lot more parenting than they did before. Uh, that so, so for the uh, sibling relationships get negatively affected by, I mean, I mean this is, do you understand? These are just generalities. I'm not saying this is true for every case, and it may not be true for any case. These are just my sort of theories. But wait for that to pass. Hello? Uh, hello? Hi. Yep, I was just I was just I'm sorry, I just added this guy. <laughs> oh sure. Sorry, this yeah, is so uh, hang on hang yeah. on just one second. Let me finish my thought and then we'll we'll get to you. So Okay. Uh, so when like if you have a single parent, the elder siblings will often have to take care of the younger siblings while the elder parent like while the parent does necessary things like like cook and and you know, if you go to the grocery store, uh, the elder like if you have two parents in the grocery store, you can manage the kids, of course, much more easily than one parent in the grocery store. And so the parent has to lean upon the elder children to be pseudo-parents in a case of a divorce. And that will cause them, I think, often to resent the lack of freedoms that they have now. And they will resent the, um, the younger siblings. And it causes lots of problems between siblings when this occurs. Uh, my parents got divorced shortly after I was born. I'll never know the degree to which my brother may or may not have thought that at some level I was responsible for the divorce. Or if I hadn't come along, they'd still be together or whatever, right? I don't know. I don't know. Mm. But it may explain some of his uh, malevolence uh, towards me when we were kids. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but it has shattering effects on every dimension, right? So it's not just parents, children, they're sibling. Sibling relationships are massively important in people's lives because the sibling relationships follow you in a way through life that parental relationships don't, right? Because with a parent, you become an adult. But siblings, you're always in parallel. So, uh, yeah, the degree to which divorce has an effect on sibling relationships or uh, if, um, you know, um, one parent uh, likes one, one kid more than the other and uh, uh, that has an effect or, or if one kid reminds the one parent of the other parent, right? I mean, my mom was constantly mm-hmm. saying how much my brother was like my father. I mean, to what degree did that affect their relationship? Well, to an enormous degree. So, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a big, big deal. Uh, and... Um, it's uh, it's really something worth exploring. It, it, it's one of the biggest things that can happen in a family. It's really the biggest thing that can happen that, that's negative other than the death of a family member is a divorce. And so uh, it's really worth exploring. And the obvious place to look is the parents, and that's useful. But uh, look at the effects on the, you know, try and figure out what was going on for your siblings during this divorce and how they processed it emotionally and what their relationship was, was with you. Uh, if you're If you're the... Um, if you're the parent, like let's say that um, uh, the, you're your mom's favorite and the mm-hmm. two siblings end up living with the mom then, and, and the, the dad is favorite is the other kid, then the other kid's going to feel like, well, damn, now I'm in a situation where um, you know, my mom prefers this sibling to me and my dad prefers me to the other sibling, but I don't get to live with him, so resents that. But that kind of stuff just really sticks in, in kids' minds. So it's, uh, it's really worth exploring from from every angle. I think it really does does help to look at these things very deeply. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And just sort of to echo some of what, some of what you're saying, and I, it's just a lot, lot more for me to think about on this. But um, it was never said explicitly, but I got the sense that I, you know, I reminded my father of my mother. Um, I look little. I look a little bit more like that side of the family, you know. Um, but also uh, with my brother, um, I remember him saying that, he, and this is sort of the resentment you're talking about. He, you know, he always felt that I was gro- at, 
in the schools that we were in, you know, we'd had the same teachers and he was always being compared to me, you know, it was always in, in, in like my shadow, um, which is part of it. I'm not sure exactly how that relates to the divorce aspect, but, um, he also got along better with my father, but in a sort of a real compliant way, mm. like they were able, it was, it was, it was weird though. Cause they actually were as, as my brother's a teenager, he was actually able to kind of have a fight with my father, but then they were like sort of amicable afterwards, where that was never the case with me. Right. It, was, it was always like, you know, uh, you know, just retreat back into the foxhole if I can. You know, it was, it was never a, you know, never sort of a standoff, never sort of being able to enjoy sports together. Because I didn't like sports, you know, my father and brother did. But anyway, that's maybe a little off the case. I, I was, I'm not sure about the divorce, but, you know, certainly, I'm sure there's definitely something in there for me to explore. Yeah, I, I would. I would. I really would. I mean, it's strange parallels in life. You know, I mean, it's sometimes not even evident until afterwards. I mentioned this before, but I was in a, a long-term relationship and then left it at the same age. I was the same age I left it as my dad was when he left my mom. So these things, these parallels can occur if you don't really understand them. And uh, so anyway, sorry, let's let's go on. We've had another caller who wanted to, to ask a question or two, so I'm sorry about making you wait, but uh, thank you for reminding no me. Morse code stutters in the chat room, <laughs> so I do apologize. Please go ahead. Sorry about that. Um, yes, um, I'm relatively new to all of this. Um, I just kind of stumbled in. I came from, I actually discovered this entire world of, of rational thought from uh, the, as part of the Alex Jones listenership, which... So now I've stumbled into this. I've I've read your first book, and um, I know this is kind of off topic from the theme of what was just discussed. But I wanted to kind of get this question in here um, to see what you thought about it. There, um, there's no off topic, so please, by all means, okay. uh, whatever you come up with is great, and more than welcome. Okay, great. Um, okay, so if we can accept, I guess, that statism statism is unsustainable, then we can accept that due to what seems to be a lot of recent indicators or factors that the state is on its way to a state of inoperation or not being able to function, it seems like. That is the, the, the downward hill that we're going on. And if this happens, I guess my proposition is that if this does occur, then the rate at which it takes, if this happens, let's say, in the United States, in this geographical region, if it does, then the rate at which it takes for people to follow the majority bias and just go ahead and implement another state, if that can take long enough, do you not think that the tangible benefits, by effect, the tangible material benefits would be able to be experienced by those in that, in that region to inform their ethics? Hello? Yes. Uh, sorry, I just want to make sure I understood. Sorry, which region was this? Uh, the, the U.S. So, the so United if, ju- sorry, just step me through. So the tangible benefits, if, if what happens? I'm sorry, you may have cut out. I just missed that. Um, would it, if, if, for example, the United States became stateless because the state's inability to function because it is unsustainable, if it does become stateless in this geographical region, do you think that the tangible benefits of a stateless society would be would be able to inform people that, hey, maybe we shouldn't reform another state. Oh if yeah. We accept, if we accept that the state is 
in effect, going is by recent indicators of you know hyperinflation and things, which seem to be likely, uh, which would inevitably make the state unable to tell you know to pay soldiers to go initiate force against others because you know it's like telling someone to go punch someone in the face in exchange of nothing of value. It's just, I just don't see how that's going to work, you know? So, um, sorry, was that question convoluted? <laughs> no, no, listen, I, I think I understand. So you're saying, let, let's say that the government collapses and we have a stateless society in the United States. Wouldn't Correct. people say, well, damn, this is so good, I never want to go back? Over time, like, the, like over time, you know, the rate, of, so it's going to take a while for people, even though let's say that the majority of people flip out and they want to reinstitute another state because that's all they've ever known, right? Well, if that takes long enough, do you think that the tangible benefits of it being stateless during that time are going to be realized? Well, listen, I mean, I, I, I'd want to uh, quibble a little bit with your idea about how it's going to happen. I don't okay. believe... Look, anything can happen, but I, I would make a strong argument that we do not get a stateless society because the government collapses any more than we get uh, a, an atheist society because a church collapses, right? So uh, the, the state, you have to remember there's, there's two words of the meaning, sorry, two meanings of the word the state or the phrase the state. The first okay. is the, the particular form of government we have now, right? So this uh, predatory clusterfrack of debt-ridden democracy, that's sort of what we have now. And... If the state collapses, well, that doesn't mean that we don't get a state. Usually what that means is we get a worse state, right? So you look at uh, the collapse of the Weimar Republic in um, 1920s, early 1930s Germany, well, you get a, a dictatorship, right? You look at the collapse of Tsarist Russia uh, in uh, 1916, 1917, other than the brief interlude of the Mensheviks, which were more focused on, who were more focused on democracy, you ended up with a highly predatory state. If you look at the collapse of the ancient uh, Chinese empire uh, in the Second World War and post-Second World War period, you end up with um, uh, communist, uh, uh, the communism under Mao. So uh, there are examples to the contrary, but they're kind of few and far between. The collapse uh, or the slow collapse of Rome resulted in the Dark Ages for right. you know, seven or eight hundred years. So there's the collapse of the existing system, but not the collapse of statism itself. It's sort of like uh, you're, you're, a, <laughs> you're a slave and you say, well, my master's going to die someday. And then he wills you to his even more brutal brother. And you're like, damn, I guess my master died, but slavery didn't. So I'm still a slave. So oh, I really... Yeah, so I want to caution you that, that the collapse of the existing system is very unlikely to lead to a stateless society. The reason being that... There is, there's not going to be like an... Sorry, I didn't... No, uh, go ahead. I just want to clarify. So there's not going to be like this... In, not even a smallest window of in-between, like that, you know, where there might be an opportunity to say, hey, now we're stateless, and then five minutes later, now we're not... No, like no, that. because uh, no, that's not not how it's going to happen. The way it's going to happen is that there has to be a moral revolution first. In other words, people have to first identify the state as immoral before they can get rid of the state. See, the state is only supported by people's positive opinion of the state, and people's positive opinion of the state 
it sits on two basic approaches. The first is moral and the second is pragmatic. So people say, we need the government because it's the only way we can help the poor and the old and the sick and be charitable and have streets and have sanitation and have clean food and have uh, clean water. And, and if we don't have these things, then we're going to be just back to eating potato bugs in the dirt beside uh, a giant stone chicken. So that's sort of people say, well, it's moral. And then there's a practical thing. Well, in the absence of the state, all these terrible things, the warlords and uh, nature red in tooth and claw and all these terrible things are going to happen. And so when you say, well, let's get rid of the state, what people sort of look at you like you, you go to the doctor with the athlete's foot and he says, well, I think I'm going to need to remove your heart. And people are like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. That has nothing to do with my athlete's foot. And so people just don't understand it yet. And so you need a moral revolution where people are going to say, we're going to look at society from first principles. Because that's what you needed with slavery, right? You needed for people to say, slavery is immoral. Slavery is immoral. Only then, and America was the only country in the world where it took 800,000 murders and a civil war to get rid of slavery, although... Many argue that wasn't the real purpose of the Civil War, but rather to control the tax revenue flowing from the southern states. But um, it took a moral revolution, and it took a long time for that moral revolution, 150 years or so for that moral revolution to take root. And for people then to say, not – like so people would say, well, let's get rid of slavery, and people would say, well, that's insane. Society can't function without slavery. We wouldn't have any food because nobody would grow the crops. Uh, the, the, the slaves would all just lie down in the ditch and die because they're not competent to organize their own lives. So you're completely insane, right, to say we should get rid yeah. of slavery. And what eventually happened was people said, how can you defend slavery, right? So the balance of power shifted because the moral understanding had grown to the point where originally it was the people saying, let's get rid of slavery who were considered insane. But then... It was the people who were defending slavery who were considered crazy. And that's when, that's when the system ends, right? So anti-Semitism was enshrined in Christianity and in particular in Catholicism, though it also ran pretty rampant in, uh, uh, in, in Protestantism, various streams of uh, flavors of Protestantism. And so to be an anti-Semitic throughout most of human history was, you know, of course, of course, right? Uh, saying Jews were corrupt or nasty or inferior or whatever was sort of the equivalent of saying uh, dogs uh, are not as intelligent as adult humans. It was just like, well, of course, right? But now to be anti-Semitic is, you know, how can you be right. anti-Semitic, right? Because there's exactly. been a moral revolution. And so, yeah. uh, you know, if... I think if, I get what you're saying. It's, yeah. it's, it's basically, so basically as... Um, if we're to do our work uh, from a philosophy standpoint, we can do our work from a philosophy standpoint while the state's existing or while it's um, not existing. But that, in, as you've just informed me, is really not going to be the case because there's no other uh, way to do. It. Yeah, there's no other way to do it. There's no other way to look. America was the world's experiment in the smallest government that was the most principled in terms of its commitment to liberty. Why did that happen? in the 18th century rather than the 14th century or the 10th century or the 10th century BC. What was the difference between America? It wasn't the first revolution. It certainly wasn't the revolution, the first revolution against the colonial power. It wasn't the first declaration of independence in human history, right? It wasn't the first new land that had been discovered and colonized by a superior civilization technologically. None of these things were unique to America. There was only one thing that made America different 
from every other country, and that was 100 years of Enlightenment philosophy that preceded it. That's the only difference. That's the only difference because that had never before occurred in human history, which was the Scottish Enlightenment. So you, had, you had John Locke, you had uh, uh, Hume, you had even Kant to some degree, all of them arguing for universal ethics, all of them arguing for a diminishment of state power. Uh, you had massive amounts of them. Voltaire, who said the most, one of the most radical things in the world, where he said, I disagree with everything you say, but I would fight to the death for your right to say it. Unthinkable in human right. history. So you had... The, you know the 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 late Middle Ages, uh, the the, the uh, late Middle Ages uh, Renaissance. You had the Renaissance, uh, uh, Mediterranean Renaissance, that spread throughout the world, where people focused on the earthly and the secular rather than the divine and the dead. Uh, you had the Enlightenment, the uh, most incredible thing. You had the, the the growth of the scientific method. You had secularism. You had skepticism towards religion for the first time, and therefore the ingredients and were in place. Things- and all those things happened without a state necessarily collapsing beforehand. They just happened through philosophic work. Yeah, and look, I would, I would even make the strong argument that there would have been nothing to fight for in America if it wasn't for the Enlightenment. There wouldn't have been a declaration of independence if it hadn't been for the Enlightenment because they had ideals that they wished to follow. Otherwise, uh, why bother? I see. And, and I think that's, you know, there's a lot of information out there that is, you know, it's just constantly hammering home the idea that, you know, you know, inflation is going to increase, which it is. And, uh, you know, the economy is getting shredded. And, and I guess it just seems like there's a lot of, and I drew my conclusions thinking, well, if the economy is continuing to get worse, then would that not have a practical effect on the state's ability to function? And so I got even more optimistic and went to the next conclusion saying, well, if the state has a window, a period of not being able to function, then that might be some time where people could experience the effect of statelessness. But now that we've kind of closed that gap and I understand that that window can't exist if people's moral outlook is, is it has not been changed whatsoever. Because no, it's and look, like- remember, uh, as things in the government get worse, what is the ruling class going to do? What are they going to say? Are they going to say, yeah, we fucked up. Oh, my God, there's too much state power. We have too much of your money. Fiat currency was a really bad idea. Uh, and so we are going to uh, do the right thing and surrender all of this power and return the power to the people. And blah. No, they're not going to do that because they control the mainstream media to a large degree. I mean, I would say almost exclusively. And so what they're going to do is they're going to say, freedom has failed, the free market has failed, and this, this mythology has already been put in place, right? Because everybody thinks that it was deregulation that caused the financial crisis, right? Even though these financial crises did not occur in the 50s and 60s when regulation in many ways was much looser. So people are already blaming freedom for everything that goes wrong. And so when you, when you say that smoking causes cancer, everyone says, well, if you don't want to get cancer, then at least lung cancer, stop smoking. And so when everybody believes that freedom causes financial disasters, then they'll say, well, we've got to stop having freedom so that we can have stability. And that's, you know, that's what people believed in the Weimar Republic, and that's what dictated Hitler coming into power. Uh, so a misdiagnosis is uh, the same as poisoning. So that's why we have to keep getting the word out there that it's not freedom, but violence. That has failed. It is not liberty, but coercion that has failed. It is not the market, but the state that has failed. Because otherwise, people yeah. will 
will put the wrong pill in the wrong end. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and I guess I, my hopes were crushed just a little bit. My optimism was crushed just a little bit, but that's okay because it really, it really helps. I was thinking too much from effect. I was thinking way too much from effect, and I should have been thinking more that, you know, it's, it's, the only thing that really matters is are the ideas that inform people's beliefs and actions and things. So that is the only fight there is to fight, and that is through debate and, and effect alone. For some reason, I just think that if people can see that something isn't working, then I guess I give the majority too much credit to be able to critically, because if they can see that something is not working, then I assume that it doesn't matter what the mainstream media says that is controlled, they would be able to recognize and connect those dots. But Well, uh, uh, how's, the, how's, how's your experience of that? Forget the theory. What has your empirical experience been of that? Is that is that something that you see happening a lot? Well, just there is there does seem to be a slight increase in probably due to the advances of the internet to increased information awareness, but that might not be because the state's not correctly working. It might be just because oh they have access to more information. And I, oh. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you with that that the information is definitely there for the people who want it. But let let me say, okay, so out of your out of your family and friends, uh, how many people would I, you say have woken up to some semblance of the truth? Um, well, that's that's kind of why I've even initiated this discussion is because my my own parents, who you know, w- I wouldn't have dreamed they were deep religious, straight Church of Christ background. They uh, just recently are starting to consider, and it might, and I think it's more attributed to just, oh, there's more information on the internet, and um, th- that they are considering the possibility that they're being lied to on the TV. Wow! So that, hey, that blew me you know, away. I got to tell you, you must, you got to post how you did this on the board. A, fantastic, and B, good for you. Uh, good for you. Uh, that is a, that is a beautiful thing to hear. So. You have reason for optimism, for sure, particularly if you're getting skeptics out of, you know, as you say, very religious people. So, yay! Yeah. <laughs> I just think that's, yeah, that's, that's good for you. Well, I, and I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an overload because, I guess because, I mean, I'm just very recently aware of a lot of things of how everything is working. And so, so I think that uh, some of it has come from my just observation of the state's inability to just simply function. And, and I, for some reason, something tells me, even though the mainstream media is controlled, I still feel like there is a, uh, a growing sentiment that, hey, things are just not functioning and that they, were, they don't necessarily just believe the explanations that come off the television, I suppose. So I don't know. It's, um, I definitely think... That uh, and I think this is where I draw my optimism. It's just based on just those observations. But uh, more than likely, it's people. The, the masses are definitely um, still ringing in the propaganda. Um, I don't know exactly how long, but it just seems to me like propaganda and funding. So, and if they can't, if you can't fund propaganda, then because the economy is declining then it just seems like propaganda is less effective. Yeah, now, but remember, of course, people have 15,000 hours of propaganda from their schools as well, right? 
So it right. does it does take a while. It's important to be patient with people. Uh, it takes a while to unplug from the matrix for sure. Yes, but uh, good for much. you. Good for you. And and you know, I think I think the key thing though in the long run is to make the argument for morality and say, look, we just we got to stop using this force to try and get things to work because everybody gets that it doesn't doesn't work. And uh, you know, if we can get people to um, to accept that, then we're just a heck of a lot a long way further. So good for you, man. I think that's just fantastic. And you know, for what it's worth, say yay to your parents for me. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks for taking my call. You're very welcome, man, and uh, keep in touch if you can. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. Right, thanks. All right. Well, I believe, unless we had any last-minute amenities, if you could uh, give me your questions. I think we have time for one more. Yeah, I'm sorry. You've, you've asked this question about growth of democracy. I don't really quite understand it, so perhaps if you can. Uh... Oh, this question. Well, you able to say, I'm a Canadian. I do this or that, what's called identity, very often religion is there too. What would you call identity? The identity of a person in a free society. Wow, fantastic question. I have goosebumps. Uh, I have goosebumps. Um, that's a great question. I wonder if I have any useful things to say about the identity of somebody in a free society. Well, I think there would be something... There would still be something to do with work because work does have some aspect to who you are as a person. Yeah, human, for sure. But I think work does something, have something to do with who you are uh, as a person. What you choose to do as an occupation has some relatedness. So I think that's relatively okay. But I think it wouldn't be driven so much by vanity. I mean, a lot of stuff is sort of driven by, by vanity. And as far as geographical location goes, I don't know. Maybe people would say I'm a member of XDRO. Oh, I'm a member of YDRO. Let's take this outside. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I don't know. That's a that's a great question. I I actually don't have anything intelligent to say about that, uh, but it is a great question, and I'm going to add it to the list of podcasts to work on because uh, uh, I wouldn't want to diminish the quality of the question with a substandard answer. So uh, I'm afraid you have stumped me, and you get a prize called "Oh my God, I stumped Steph." <laughs> so I hope that I hope that's gratifying. Yeah, hobbies, maybe hobbies as well. I don't know. You'll name yourself after the local sports team. Well, it's a free market, so obviously they would get a tattoo on your forehead as a baby. So uh, so good for you. I'm, I'm going to take this right now and copy and paste that question straight into my list of podcasts to do. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a free gift. Yeah, no, send me, your, send me your username. I will upgrade your message board account just for the intense quality of that, uh, of that question. So uh, I'm more than, more than gratefully accepted. This is not to say that other people's questions weren't really good. You know, I'm just saying. Uh, I did. Uh, I put out a few new podcasts this week, so I hope that you will check them out. And I believe that's all we've got. Who says that country's borders as old relics would disappear in a stateless world? No, they'd still be there as markers for how crazy things used to be. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you everybody so much for all of your support. If you have, you know, summer can be a little bit of a lean time for, uh, you know, Freedom Aid Radio because uh, I don't know, people are buying sunscreen or uh, other things of utility to them. So if you have a little bit of extra money but like to sign up for a subscription or a donation, it is always, always highly gratefully accepted at freedomainradio.com forward slash donate or fdrurl.com forward slash donate. And uh, thank you everybody so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week and I will talk to you soon.